before we get going, just uh, turn to the person next to you, introduce yourselves if you don't know who you are, and just um, share with them one moment of history that you can say, I know where I was where I heard that news. Yeah, uh, one moment of history where you say, I know where I was when I heard that news. Just take a moment to sort of talk to the person next to you. Okay, hope you enjoyed that. You can carry that on afterwards. I guess I wanted to start with that because there are three experiences I've had over the last few weeks that have prompted me to think about how in a nation story, how in the history of the world or the history of a particular nation, there are kind of certain defining moments that are instantly memorable. Uh, Three things that led me to think about that. First of all, um, last week I visited the wonderful Cosmonaut exhibition in the Science Museum, and I bought a book about Sputnik, the first ever satellite launched in 1957. It's more interesting than it sounds. Um, uh, And the book is about how Sputnik, as, as you might remember, catapulted the Soviet Union ahead of the USA in what became known as the Space Race. And it was an absolutely defining moment in the history of the USSR and the presidency of Khrushchev, and indeed of the Cold War. That's one thing. Secondly, I was looking through my bookcase the other day, and I came across this very special edition of the German news magazine, Stern, from November 1989. I don't know why I got it. With the headline, Deutschland, Grenzloser Freude. Grenzenloser Freude, which means uh, Germany, uh, uh, joy without borders. And it's the edition that was issued after the fall of the Berlin Wall in November 1989. And, um, and all that meant for the future of Germany, Europe, and USSR. I was 15 at the time. And I just remember recognising this was an absolutely epoch-changing moment in the history of the West and the Cold War. And then third, this last week, we saw the vote in Parliament to start bombing attacks in Syria. And I I followed a little bit on the debate during the end of uh, the debate uh, and saw Hilary Benn's speech. And I couldn't help wondering if that also was in some way a defining moment in our history, as for good or ill, we took a decisive step in what has been known as the battle against terror. Time, of course, will tell whether it is a step forwards or a step back. But if there are defining moments on the national stage, there are also defining moments in our lives as well. Perhaps like me, you can look back on a few key moments, perhaps an envelope being opened with some important exam results, perhaps an interview which took you in a new direction, or perhaps uh, a chance meeting which opened an unexpected door. Now, though those moments don't come every day, they don't come every week, but they do come And uh, often we remember them as if they were yesterday, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for ill. It seems to me one of the things that makes a moment defining is that it changes the future. After such a moment, things are not the same. The future looks different. How, we're not perhaps sure at the time, but that power will change And the other thing about kind of defining moments, it seems to me, is that they also bring a sense of vulnerability. Often those moments are defining because we realise we are not completely in charge. Perhaps we're getting results from elsewhere. Perhaps we're finding out how someone else will use their power. They're moments that are defining because they define where power resides and how that power will change the future. And I guess all that's been kind of slightly swirling through my mind as I've been looking at this uh, chapter from Genesis that uh, we just had read out to us just now. 
Uh, as, regular as, as regular worshippers here at Holy Trinity will know, we've been working through the first half of Genesis under the title Abraham and Sons. We've been looking at how God called Abraham out of nowhere to be a father of many and a blessing to the whole world. And we saw how God provided Abraham with a son, Isaac. And then we've been looking at Isaac's somewhat dysfunctional family, and especially his son Jacob, who has staggered from deception to deception with occasional glimmers of light on the way. But it struck me, of all the episodes involving Jacob, this grandson of Abraham, of all the episodes involving him, this episode today is the defining moment. This night of wrestling with God is not only a huge event in itself, but it changes his future. And it does so by revealing to Jacob where power lies. And it's not where he thinks. So perhaps you'd um, have a, just a look at it with me. That there are going to be lessons for us this morning about what we fear, about how we might meet with God and what might be different in our lives as a result. If you're here this morning and you're exploring Christian faith, I hope you're going to find it very helpful to hear about how we can meet with God today. If you're a Christian here, I hope you're going to be challenged and encouraged to explore the limits of our strength and the power of God to work in our weakness. And while the main application is going to be for us as individuals, I think it's going to speak to our community and also the nation of which we're a part. So take your Bibles with me. It's on page 36. It's Genesis chapter 32. There are Bibles in the seats just in front of you. Uh, There's a little bit of a batting order, which is on a piece of pink paper. I've got three headings to kind of walk us through this morning. First of all, approaching fearfully. Secondly, meeting intimately. And thirdly, walking differently. Okay, now we pick up the story in verse 22. uh, As Jacob is clearly travelling with his family, in order to understand, though, what's going on, we need to capture, okay, what's been going on with Jacob since we met him last, because we've missed out a few chapters. Okay, we left Jacob last Sunday, having been tricked by his uncle Laban into marrying Laban's older daughter Leah before Jacob's desired bride, Rachel. And as we saw, it was a pretty messy situation and family. But in fact, the deceptions continued. Uh, Jacob used a scheme of his own to ensure that his flocks increased while Laban's decreased. And then actually Jacob fled from Laban, taking his wives and his property with him. And Laban, his uncle, is absolutely furious. He chases after Jacob. He eventually catches up with Jacob. They have a bit of a sort of powwow and they kind of come to a fairly uneasy truce. And yet Jacob's problems are not over. Because he's been told by God to go back to Canaan, where he came from in the first place. And that means meeting Esau, who's his twin brother, whose birthright he bought, and whose blessing he stole many years ago. And when Jacob hears that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 of his own men, he is terrified. Because he thinks it can only mean one thing which is disaster. He fears the worst of what Esau is going to do. And so he does something he's never been recorded as doing before. He prays. In verses 9 to 12 of chapter 32, we have a wonderfully intimate prayer, a beautiful prayer of thankfulness and petition for God to save Jacob from his brother Esau. 
And yet, <laughs> and yet, Jacob hasn't really changed his ways because straight from doing the prayer, he comes up with another scheme. This is a scheme to basically buy off his brother. Because what he does, he devises an elaborate convoy of animals that will meet Esau before Jacob meets him. He kind of sends these animals off in head of of him. And with each herd of animals, there's going to be a message to Esau that says, these are a gift from your brother Jacob. And so if you look in verse 20, the second half of it, he thought, I will pacify him, i.e. Esau, with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. Jacob is his scheming best. You know, when you, by the time you've received 400 cows, you can't really say no. So what sort of figure does Jacob come across as he stands by this ford of Jabbok, his family on the other side of the ford out of harm's way? Well, he's clearly very powerful, Jacob. He has money, as seen by the huge number of animals that he owns. He has brains, as evidenced by his cunning plans. He has the charm to make people do what he wants. And as we'll see in a moment, he is physically strong. Jacob is a powerful figure. But he's also fearful. He's afraid of what he cannot control, which is his brother. And try as hard as he might, he can't control what his brother will do to him. For all his power, he is not able to control everything. He is therefore not self-sufficient, and that makes him afraid. It strikes me that might actually be a description that's true of our nation, as evidenced by Wednesday's debate in Parliament on armed action in Syria. Through its advanced military technology, the UK has more power than most countries in the world. And yet perhaps we are still fearful because we cannot control the hearts and minds of those who seem intent on doing us harm. Powerful and fearful. And yet it could also be true of us. For in Claygate, many of us have power through financial resources, through positions of responsibility, through educational achievement, through networks created. We often, by the way, have much more power than we think. But perhaps we're also fearful of what we cannot control. Relationships with others. Family. Friends. Children. Our own health and well-being. Our minds and our security. I I wonder how we're approaching life today. Perhaps we are neither as conscious of our power as Jacob was nor as fearful of a threat. But I wonder what makes us afraid and what that says on our grip on our own power and self-sufficiency. And so to the experience itself, meeting intimately, this wrestling match by the ford of Jabbok. Now listen, there's very much that's mysterious in this story, as if the the darkness of the encounter also obscures a clear recognition of what is going on. Uh, The identity of Jacob's wrestling partner, for example, is both a man, but also clearly God himself. Now we can't get to the bottom of the mystery, but we can be clear about three aspects of this encounter from Jacob's perspective. First of all, Jacob realizes that he is not all-powerful. 
Jacob realizes he is not all-powerful. I mean, he is powerful. He wrestles with this man all night until daybreak. So on one level, he's giving as good as he gets. But then this opponent just touches the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip is wrenched. With a touch, and the bone is taken from its socket. <laughs> Whoever this opponent is, he has a power that Jacob does not. And if he could do this with a touch, what could he do with a real hit? Jacob perhaps realizes that with this opponent, he's been happy and fortunate to escape with his life. You see, Jacob is forced to face the fact in this encounter that he is not master of his own destiny. There is a force more powerful him than him against which he cannot prevail. That's the first thing. Second thing that Jacob has to do is he has to face up to his own sin. You see, Jacob realizes that from this powerful figure, he wants a blessing. But in asking it, if you look with me at verse 27, he's asked a question in return. Look with me. The man asked him, what is your name? It seems like a very odd question to ask until we remember what the word and the name Jacob really means. Jacob means the deceiver. It literally means he grasps the heel, which is a code for deceiver. And that, of course, is exactly what Jacob has been. He has tricked and schemed and lied and deceived his way through life. But now, in giving his name to the figure, he has to own up to what he's been. Who are you? I am Jacob. I am the deceiver. Before this powerful figure, Jacob has to confront his own sin, his own self-centeredness, his own self-sufficiency. He's not allowed to escape or blame others or scheme his way out of problems. He has to own up to who he is. He has to face up to his own brokenness. First of all, he has to realize he's not as powerful as he thinks he is. Secondly, he has to face up to his own sin. Thirdly, Jacob experiences divine grace and blessing. Grace, by the way, means free gift. A blessing is the giving of God's favor. And grace and blessing are all the way through this encounter. The fact that he's not crushed by his opponent is a sign of God's grace. The fact that his old name is jettisoned, no longer are you going to be called Jacob, now you're called Israel, it is a sign of grace, of gift. The forgiveness that's implied with you're no longer the deceiver, you're the one who's overcome, is a sign of grace in Jacob's life. And then the actual blessing, it's just very, very snuck in there at the end of verse 29, look with me. Then he blessed him there. Then he blessed him there. You know, the first time Jacob received God's blessing, he stole it. That's how he got it. This time he asks for it, knowing he does not deserve it, but receiving it by grace. It, it seems to me that's what makes Jacob's meeting with God so intimate and so life-changing. Because it's not a meeting of equals. 
Jacob has to lay aside his power, his strength, and his position. He has to face up to his own sin. And he experiences blessing not as something he's earned or worked or schemed for, but as something that's been freely given. And I just wonder how that pattern of meeting intimately with God might speak to us. I don't know. I sometimes get a sense in our culture today that we think meeting with God would be a meeting of equals. We are so persuaded by our narrative of self-sufficiency and our collective location on the moral high ground that we think our meeting with God is going to be involve us making some pretty searching questions of him. But what if, with Jacob, we had to acknowledge that we are not as powerful, not as self-sufficient as we think? That there is someone who caused the stars to be flung into space at the beginning of time, before whom our power is tiny? And what if we had to face up to our own sin, the evil not hundreds of miles away, but the ways we have forgotten God? and lived like he wasn't looking or didn't care how we lived, how we spoke, or how we spent. And what if we came to God not thinking we could earn his forgiveness or favour, but had to receive it as an unmerited gift, that the blessings offered in Jesus Christ, the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of a life-changing spirit within us, the blessing of a hope that will not fade, a purpose that will not go away, What if those are gifts that we could never, ever afford or never, ever repay? What if a meeting with God looked like that? I think that Christian understanding of how we meet with God is beautifully captured by C.S. Lewis in the Narnia Chronicles when different characters in those stories meet Aslan, the lion. Is it common to these encounters is a sense of Aslan's power of human sinfulness and yet unmerited grace between the two. For example, there's a scene in The Magician's Nephew, the the book before The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, in which Diggory meets Aslan for the first time. And although Diggory, the little boy, wants to complain about his mother being ill, Aslan is so powerful Diggory knows he cannot argue with him. Instead, he becomes conscious of what he's done wrong in introducing evil into Narnia. And yet he receives forgiveness and a mission from Aslan himself. And there's a moment when, through his own tears, he looks up to see Aslan and tears filling Aslan's eyes. He said bigger tears than he'd ever seen before. What if a meeting with God was something like that? That is how we meet intimately with God today. Like Jacob that day by the ford of Jabbok. Like countless Christians ever since who have met God at the foot of the cross. Meeting intimately. Let's just look at how the story ends. I've called this walking differently, and there's really just one thing I want to highlight here. 
It's that detail at the end of verse 31. If you look at it with me, it says, The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Whatever the exact medical condition Jacob would have been diagnosed with in A&E, he was not able to walk properly. The encounter with God would have a lasting effect on him. But I think, I think it's included in that story to get us thinking a bit more deeply than kind of poor Jacob. Because I think it points to the fact that he was walking differently in more than one sense. Yeah? In fact, I think his physical difference merely pointed to a deeper transformation that had gone on in his heart. In one sense, I'm using material from later on in the story to evidence this, but even in those words in verse 30, you see a new sense of humility in Jacob, a new sense of dependence on God. And sure enough, this is amazing, the next chapter, chapter 33, begins with Jacob not trying to buy off his brother with advanced gifts of cattle, but going out first in front of his family to meet his brother face to face. That's how things have changed. And I'm left wondering whether the limp was not a helpful reminder to Jacob, not only of his nighttime encounter with God, but also what he needed to remember about himself, that he was not in ultimate control, that it was not all down to him, that perhaps just as he needed to lean on his stick so he also needed to lean on God and not on himself. Does that make sense? That actually there was something fundamental in as Jacob limped his way from that encounter, that he realized that he was not the man he thought he was, that he could not scheme his way out of every problem, but that he needed to lean on the God he'd met. And my mind goes to a passage in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul speaks of physical weakness in a similar vein. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks of a thorn in his flesh, a physical affliction we think of some kind, but we don't know what, which he asked the Lord to take away from him three times. But it wasn't taken away. And yet he received this assurance from the Lord, who said, My grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that leads Paul to conclude, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you know, I suspect Jacob would have understood those words. Weakness not as a path away from God, but as a path to God. There are a number of things I would like the Lord to take away from me. One is a tricky liver problem that can flare up and leave me feeling very fatigued. But I've discovered that the things that remind me that I am not sorted on my own, that I continually need God's strength and grace to serve him, can actually lead me to a greater humility about my own capacity and a greater trust in God's. And if there's one way in which I think we are called to walk differently as Christians from simply the way of the world, it's in our humility. 
a humility that's based on our right understanding of ourselves and patterned on the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid aside his power to die on the cross. This week we had the funeral in church for John Maine, who was a long-standing member of this church for almost 50 years. Now, John reached high office in the legal profession and finished his career as a judge. But the most enduring fruit in John's life was his humility. For example, at the funeral, his grandchildren only found out after his death how accomplished he was. And yet his life bore great fruit for God in his own generation and the generations that followed. You see, after meeting God, Jacob walked differently. I think after meeting God and realizing he wasn't all-powerful, realizing he was a sinner in need of forgiveness, realizing that he received blessing from God as a grace, not as a work, it changed his heart. It took him to a new place of dependence on God, humility about himself. I wonder if we have met God deeply and intimately, how are we called to walk differently, perhaps experiencing weakness as a proper stimulus to humility? So as we kind of begin to think about this and move into a time of prayer ministry and worship, can I encourage us to think about three questions? And maybe one of these questions speaks to you and the other two don't, whatever. First question is this. What is making you fearful this morning? What is making you fearful this morning? Because we saw that for all his power, Jacob started this story fearful of what he could not control. I wonder what there is this morning that is making us question our self-sufficiency and our power. Secondly, how are we meeting with God today? How are we meeting with God today? You see, Jacob met intimately with God through realizing he was not as powerful as he thought. He he recognized his own sin, and yet he received God's grace. That makes me think of when John Main's funeral, I, I shared on a Tuesday, I think three core truths about ourselves that impact how we meet God that actually pick up on exactly what Jacob realized. Three core truths about ourselves. Let me tell you what they are. I think they're so vital. Number one, we're created. Number two, we're broken. And number three, we're loved. Number one, we're created. We are not our own, and we are made by someone more powerful than us. That's vital for us to remember. Secondly, we're broken. We have not lived up to who we are. All of us have turned away from our maker. We are broken people in need of healing, sinful people in need of a savior. And thirdly, we are loved. Above all, we are loved by God, loved freely, loved generously, loved sacrificially, for he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. That's how we meet with God. When we come to God and say, I'm created, I am broken, I am loved. And thirdly, how are you walking differently because you've met with God? 
You see, Jacob's heart was transformed by meeting God, and through physical weakness, he entered a new place of humility and dependence. Perhaps God wants to use a limitation you experience to take you on a journey of humility and dependence with him. We talked earlier about defining moments. I think I want to say every time we meet with God can be a defining moment. But how we meet with God is really down to us. Because we can meet to God like he's kind of the other side of the stream, a long, long way away, like the children saw Aslan on the other side of the mountain gorge. Or we can meet with God like Jacob met him that night, face to face, realizing we are not all powerful, we're created. Realizing we are not all perfect, we are broken. And realizing we are not all self-sufficient, but we are loved. I just I want to invite us this morning to meet with God. I, I don't know which one you need to remember. Do you need to remember you're created? That there's someone more powerful than you? Do you need to remember you're broken? But actually you've walked away from him and you need his grace? Or do you need to remember you're loved? That you are deeply loved of God? We're going to listen to a song called King of Kings Majesty. It's a song that takes us into the throne room of God, a throne room where we don't deserve to be, but we find ourselves by grace. And just as you listen to Toby and the band sing the words, just as we sit down, you might want to think about those three things, that you're created by a powerful God, that you're broken, and that you're loved. And let's just pray the Holy Spirit will lead us as we seek to meet with God today.